the book of Revelation, chapter number three. We're going to be looking at, we're going to start in Revelation three, but we're going to be looking at um, a lot of different verses today. We're excited about what God has been doing, and we're excited about what he has for us this evening. I uh, have quite a bit of verses, so I am going to be talking quickly. Um, some of you are probably thinking, you already talk fast anyway, so I'm not going to understand anything you say. Um, the other of you are probably going, hallelujah. And uh, so this way we can actually go home in time for dinner. But no, seriously, um, you know, I want to look at this idea of contentment versus complacency. And when you think of those two words, there is some similarities in them, but there are also some distinct differences, um, some subtle differences, if you will, but some very important differences in those words. And for the Christian, and for the Christian, those differences are very, very uh, important for us to identify because, you know, when, when you think about the word complacent, it has negative connotations most of the time. When you think about contentment, it has mostly positive. And, and from a biblical perspective, that's true and that's accurate. However, I believe that as we live in the days we live in, for us as believers, um, I think the, the, the differences between these two words has become a little bit blurred. And, you know, they kind of almost used at times interchangeably, and that's a very dangerous thing, as you're going to see. When you think about contentment, I'm drawn to the Apostle Paul. Because when you think about his ministry, and you can think about any specific situation, but if you think about his ministry, for example, his uh, time in Philippi when he gets thrown in jail. You know, there could have been a moment where he could have become very bitter, very angry, very discouraged, yet because of his contentment that he had in Jesus Christ, he could praise and sing and pray, even in the midst of a difficult situation. Now, you look at others, today's church, many people are very faithful to attending church, but for many, that's where it ends. Because of this idea of being complacent and having complacency in our hearts about our I don't know if you want to call it position, but who we are in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ didn't die to save us to keep a seat warm. He died to save us, to serve him, to honor him and glorify him. To be a witness to a lost world, just like somebody witnessed to us. You know, I don't know if anybody in here was saved just because they realized, hey, I need to get saved without somebody helping them by sharing them what the gospel says. But I know personally, I would never ever have seen or heard the gospel had somebody not taken the time to talk to me and say, hey, do you know what the Bible says? And by the way, it started before the words came out of that person's mouth. It started with the testimony of their life, a changed life. And so I look at the things that are going on today, and I think the devil is having a field day by lulling us into a sense of complacency. I read this, I found this, I don't know who this is attributed to, but I read this, it's a, what they call, it's a story that's become kind of like a legend. But apparently there's this legend where three demons are having a conversation. And they're planning a way to 
um, get the most victims. And by victims, they mean Christians. And so the first one says, I know what we can do. Let's tell the people that there is no God. The others look at him and say, well, that won't work because there's too many evidences around us to know that there is a God. So they think a little bit longer. And the second one says, I've got it. Let's tell them there's no hell. And they consider that for a minute. And then the others say, well, that's not going to work because some of the people that they know are there. They consider the matter a little bit longer. And then the third one finally says, I know. Let's tell them that there's no hurry. And I'm afraid this is where we are today. There's no urgency in Christianity today. There's no, you know, um, urgency to get the message out. There's no urgency about serving the Lord. We just kind of live and kind of just kind of go along with the tide. But for the Christian, if you read through the book of Acts, all the things that went on in the book of Acts, most of those men and women in the book of Acts, they were going against the tide. They were swimming upstream, so to speak. And it was a lot of work and it was a lot of effort because everywhere they turned, there was opposition. But I think for us, we kind of feel like, man, things are going great. Man, things are smooth. There's, everything is wonderful. Everybody loves me. And I kind of think that if that's the case, then maybe there's something wrong. Because our message is really not a popular message. It's a needed message, but it's not necessarily a popular one. And so we need to realize that there is an enemy. And when we think of the enemy, when we think of the devil, what do we think of? We think of, you know, he's going to fire the fiery darts at us and he's going to attack us from all sides. Man, we're going to see it coming and we've got to be prepared for it. But you know what? Most of the attacks of the devil are a lot more subtle than that. He lulls us into a sense of false security. He lulls us. There's a lot of people who are living moral lives who are lost and on their way to hell. But the devil has convinced them, man, as long as I live a good life, as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm, I'm okay. And for the Christian, he's convinced us that, listen, maybe it's not worth doing it. Or maybe it's like, you know, I got, I got, I got a lot to do. Whatever the case is, but he's lulled us into a sense of complacency. And guess what? A complacency means no action. And if there's no action, guess what? He's won. So we need to understand that there is a very, very clear difference between the words contentment and the word complacency. Unfortunately, today the lines have been blurred. So let's look at some of these things, and let's take a look, and hopefully this will be a, a blessing. The first thing I want to look at is the complacent Christian. Webster defines complacency this way, a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Let me read that again. Self, I'm sorry, a feeling of being satisfied with how things are, not wanting to try to make them better. Are we there in our life today? Are, are we satisfied with how things are? Or do we want to make things better for the glory of God? Let me remind you, we serve the king of kings. We serve the creator of the universe. So anything that God desires to do through us, he can do. Yes, sir. God is not limited by us. The limitations are what we, limitations we put on ourselves by how we live or, you know, where our desires are. But God is not limited. 
Now, when, now that was Webster's definition. From a Christian perspective, what is Christian complacency? That means that no matter what goes on in life, no matter what's taking place, no matter what's happening around us, we're completely self-satisfied with our effort, our personal lives, in pursuing after Christ. So the question is, are we pursuing Jesus Christ with all of our heart tonight? Or are we kind of looking at Christ on the periphery because there's so many other things blurring our vision. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, this pandemic has, has uh, kind of opened my eyes to, and, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, one of the things that it opened my eyes to is that there was way too many things in my life of no substance that was cluttering my life and robbing my time of the time I should be spending for the Lord. And I finally realized, I said, you know, what ends up happening was, you know, Christ needs to be right at the center of all we do. But the problem is, here's Christ, and all of a sudden we start putting all these other things. And our vision of Jesus, our eyes, become more and more clouded and more and more blurred. And we don't see Christ clearly, and we don't see what he desires for us to do because we've got so many other things going on. I was laughing with, I think it was with Pastor Anthony this past week or the week before and i said you know either i'm getting older i'm losing my mind one of the two it could be a combination of both by the way well it's definitely one the other one is not too far behind but i told him i said i, I will leave my office because i have to go do something in the gym and i'll get down about 20 feet and somebody will say pastor i need you to do something oh okay i'll get right on that so here's what's happened here's a, here's what's at the front of my mind this is what i need to do i'm going to the gym to do this all of a sudden somebody stops me and says something else and all of a sudden this goes to the front and that gets pushed back well, two more people stop me. By the time we get to the gym, I don't even know what the second thing was, no less the first. And this is what happens in our Christian life. We have so many things going on, so many things we need to remember, so many things we need to do that we forget what's the most important thing. So what are reasons for complacency? Why, are, why do we have complacency in our life? This is a great quote. Complacency is a blight that saps energy dulls attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is satisfaction with things as they are. The second is rejection of things as they might be. Good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. And I think, you know, that's where we are. Good enough or average has become the new standard, the new barometer for excellence. Average is not excellence. Average is average. We can... We can rephrase it any way we want. We can put any kind of spin on it we want. But average is just that. It is average. Well, listen, the creator of the universe, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, did not save us to just be average. And if you look at the things that, have, that, the, that the, the men and the women in the Bible were able to accomplish in the power and the spirit of God, that's the same God and the same spirit that dwells with us, within us today. Why do we think that can't happen today? It certainly can. It's certain, God certainly desires for things like that to happen. Let me, the rest of the quote reads this way. Complacency makes people, and I underline these three things, it makes people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and abhor the new. When we're complacent and we don't see God doing great things in our life, we fear the unknown. If God calls you to go do something, listen, if you're on fire for God and God's doing some great things in your life and all of a sudden God says, hey, I have a, something I, he's calling you to do and it's something you've never tried before, someplace you've never been before, you know what's, you know what's going to happen? You're more willing to say, man, I'm going to go do it because look at what God has done. 
But if you're kind of just sitting back and taking your ease, and God says, hey, I want you to drop everything and go do this, you're much less willing to do that. Like water, the complacent people follow the easiest course, downhill. They draw false strength from looking back. And that can happen. You know, we start looking back at something God did three years ago, and it was awesome, and it was great. And then we look at something God did two years ago. Man, that was great. At the time, it was great. But you know what? God desires to do greater than that. Sure. Why? If, all, if, if our excitement and our encouragement is from something that happened three years ago, listen, God didn't stop working three years ago. Right. It's the same God who did that work. You know, I've shared with you before, many of you know, you know, what our prayers for our school have been. Last year, I encouraged and challenged our staff, and I said, listen, I'm praying for God to do something impossible. I'm praying for God to do something that we can't even imagine. And you know what? God did it. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the previous year, we had 135, 138 students, whatever it was. Last year, we had close to 170 students. I know about halfway through the year, the teacher was saying, stop praying for impossible things. Next year, pray for more teachers, okay? But listen, what I saw was opportunities that we couldn't have never imagined. That was the highest enrollment we ever had. And we got to this year, and we said, man, wh wh what's next? Well, listen, pray for more. Pray for something even greater than that. Let's say greater than that? Yes, greater than that. Get a vision for what God wants you to do, but it requires us to be active, not complacent. So what are some of the reasons for complacency? Well, here's some. Sometimes we're just comfortable where we are. We get really comfortable where we are, and then what happens is we don't want to move forward. In, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I have a, a, quite a few verses, so if you don't want to turn there, I'm going to flip around. I have some of them in my notes here. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 13, it says, And when they, I'm sorry, ver, ver, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 8, verse 13, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And what is Moses saying? Be careful that you don't forget God when things get really good. Comfortable. God blessed them, and they got comfortable. And what Moses had warned them is exactly what happened. They got comfortable, and they lost sight of who God was. And they lost sight of who God was. And they very quickly, as we read through their history, we really quickly see that it ended up in, again, bondage, and it was a disaster for them. I mean, they, when, you get to the, when you get to the book of Judges, they're in constant bondage because of idolatry and other things. In Luke chapter 12 and in verse 19, this is the parable of the, of the rich fool, the Bible says in verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And as you read through it, you realize, hey, these things, they perish with you. When, when, when God calls you home, not one of those things is going with you. Not one of those things is going with you. Preachers have said it before. Listen, there is never a U-Haul following the hearse. Because not one of those things, not one of those things that those physical possessions are going with you. You know what? You know what? You know what you take with you? The things you've done for Christ. 
the reward you've earned in heaven. None of these things matter. But you know what? All these things, they rob our attention. They take our time. They cloud our vision, and they make us complacent. Here's the rich fool. He says, man, I got all these goods, and I got all these things. Take thine ease, soul. Eat, drink, be merry. That's kind of what we live in today. It's a world of entertainment. It's a world of busyness. And we get to the place where we just become really comfortable where we are. I don't think I put this quote on there. Jan, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Paderewski. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He was a Polish pianist. And he, at, for his time, he was one of the greatest pianists of his time. He said this quote. He said, there have been a few moments when I have known complete satisfaction, but only a few. I have rarely been free from the disturbing realization that my playing might have been better. Here's a guy who was probably one of the greatest of his time and was never satisfied with what he did. He was always striving for more. He went on to be a composer. He was a spokesman for Polish independence, and he went on to be the prime minister of Poland. Now, here's a guy who could have sat back and said, man, I'm one of the greatest in my field. I'm, I'm good. But he said, you know what? There are times when I know I could be even better. And for the Christian, let us never get to the place where we say, I'm good. Because God desires to do even better. Think about all that God desires to do. And again, he's not limited by, he's not limited. It's only how much we're willing to sacrifice. So comfortable where we are. Number two, some people say, eh, there's no benefit in being zealous. What's the point? Nobody's listening anyway. Why preach with power and screaming and hollering and jumping around? And, what's the point? Nobody's listening anyway. Do we do things, are we zealous because people approve? Or are we zealous because God, because God approves? You know, we gotta, we gotta ask ourselves, listen, even if not one single person ever responds, why are we doing the things we do? Listen, Jeremiah preached, 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 prophesied, prophesied for years, and all they did was figure out ways of making his life miserable, killing him, stoning him, throwing him in prison, stockades, you name it. And he continued to do what God called him to do. Now, you read through the book of Jeremiah, you never see any instance where anybody actually said, Jeremiah, you're right. Man, I'm going to repent. But he just kept going. And if you remember at the beginning of his calling, he didn't even want to do it. God, I, I, don't think this is, I don't think you picked the right guy. But you know what? When he was in, he was all in. He was all in. He, he didn't hold back. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't say, well, you know what, just in case this whole prophesying thing doesn't work out, being a prophet, I need something to fall back on. He was all in. Here's another one. God doesn't care one way or the other. Now listen, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. Because God does care. God cares about every single aspect. You know, we think that, well, just because there's no immediate judgment that God doesn't care or we got away with it in Zephaniah chapter 1 right after Habakkuk Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 12 says and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles 
and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Think about that. They're comfortable where they are. God's, God doesn't care. If I do good, he won't reward me. And if I do bad, he won't judge me. So what's the point? You know, there's a lot of people that feel that way. You know what? God cares about every aspect, good and bad. So reasons for complacency. What about some areas of complacency? What are some of the areas where we become complacent? Well, the first thing I see is complacency in our service. Complacency in our service. You know, God wants us to be passionate and fervent for everything that we do for him. Um, one of the things, years ago, one of the things I, I love to read, I've always loved to read. Before we were saved, we used to love to read spy novels and mystery novels. I, I mean, we would, my wife and I used to read all the time. I was on the bus all the time. We would read 10, 12, 15 books a year. I mean, easily. We would just keep reading. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. But when I got saved, I, I made a decision in my mind. Listen, if I'm going to keep reading, I want to make sure that I read my Bible more than I read a spy novel. And I found that if I don't have time for both, then there can only be time for one. Why? Because what's going to suffer is my Bible time. And I didn't want that to happen, so I kind of stopped reading. But you know what? We need to have that same passion that I had for reading those other books. We should have the same passion about reading the Word of God. You know, it isn't just a book of stories. This isn't just a magazine article. This is the creator of the universe, Almighty God, speaking to us. And that's the way, when we open up the Bible, we should be like, wow, God's about to speak to me. Because He is. Or we can kind of, you know, do like, and I, I'm guilty of this, I'm about to confess my sin here. When we're having a conversation with somebody, but your mind is kind of somewhere else. Oh, man. You ever do, I, I've done this, and I've gotten caught on it, I have to admit it. And you're sitting and having a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden you think, oh, man, I forgot to do something. And my mind is now, got to make sure I don't forget, got to make sure I don't forget. And all of a sudden, you know, like that voice that's in the distance you hear, right? And you kind of look back. And, you know, I don't know if, if I think I'm getting away with it. So you try and play it off. But meanwhile, the person, I can tell by the look on the person's face that the dumb look on my face gave it away. And you sit there, you go, hmm, that's interesting. They're like, you have no idea what I said. No, I don't. Not a clue. But you know what? Sometimes that's how we're reading the Word of God. We read the Word of God, but in our mind, we're running through our itinerary for tomorrow, our, our menu for dinner. We're doing all these other things. When we need to just put all that stuff away, and focus on the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but we, you, you, you t in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 28, it talks about the two foundations. You can either build your house upon the rock or build your house on the sand. But right in the beginning, in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Doeth mean, requires action. No complacency. And then he goes on to say, you need to build your house upon the rock. And if you don't, guess what? It's going to fall when you come to the storms of life. But oftentimes, we don't hear and do the sayings of God. And then when those storms come, guess what? We fall, we stumble, we struggle. Why? Because we weren't ready. We weren't listening. We were too complacent. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, 27, a lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. Think about that. The precious possession of a man is diligence. That's a precious possession we have. Having a diligent spirit 
a, 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 a zealous spirit that's on fire for God, that's a, that's a precious possession that we have. You say, well, what are some of the blessings we have? There it is. A precious possession is a man of diligence. You know, the Bible talks in James chapter 1 and verse 22 that we need to be hearers of the word, and I'm sorry, we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? Because, listen, if all we do is hear the word and it doesn't motivate us or move us to action, what's the point? All we're doing then is just gathering knowledge. You know, there's a lot of people who can answer questions about the Bible, but there'll be nothing in their life action-wise to back up what they know. And I'm not judging and I'm not condemning. What I'm saying is, you know, we got to be careful that the only reason we read that, that, we, that we fall into the trap or don't fall into the trap, that the only reason we're reading the Bible is just to gather knowledge. I mean, it's great to know what the Word of God says, but it's just as, it's just as important, if not more so, that we do what the Word of God says. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There needs to be an urgency, an urgency to act. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, Deuteronomy 5, 1, And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. So what does he say? He says, Hear, learn, keep, and then do them. You know, it wasn't just hear the words. It wasn't just hear and keep and learn them. It was hear them first, learn them, keep them. That means hide them in your heart, memorize them, let them be a part of your life, and then do them. Back in Matthew chapter 7, we read, you know, the man that didn't listen to the hearings, to the sayings of Jesus and built his house on the sand, what was he called? He was called a foolish man. A foolish man. Well, the contrary of that is, if we're wise we are going to hear what God has to say and then live our lives in such a way where we do them. I read this quote by a man named, he's a, he writes educational books, I believe. His name is A.J. Giuliani. He said, fear and complacency can be equally paralyzing. We've got to be careful because our complacency will keep us from doing things just like fear does. Listen, there's times in our life where fear paralyzes us from doing things for God. It does. But complacency can do the same thing. And sometimes the two work hand in hand. So we need to be careful not to allow the devil to, uh, you know, grab us or lull us into this, you know, false sense of security or the, lull us into this, you know, like dream sleep where we're just kind of going through the motions because God has something great he wants for us to do. So we can be complacent in our service. How about complacent in our devotion? And I don't mean devotions. I mean in our devotion. Malachi chapter 1 in Malachi chapter 1, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but in Malachi chapter 1, we'll get there in a second. There are, if you read through verses 1 through basically the whole chapter, you know, it talks about how they are being condemned or, you know, judgment is coming because of their lack of devotion to their God. Their hearts had turned. Verse number six, it says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? 
And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? What is he saying? He's saying we need to honor the Lord. There's complacent, we, we need to make sure we're not complacent in our devotion because we need to honor the Lord. Not simply by just, you know, how do we honor something? If, when the, the word honor is giving the, the idea of treasuring as valuable. So when we say we got to honor the Lord, that means we got we to treat the Lord as something or someone, I should say, valuable in our life. So when people speak ill, are we offended? Do we get offended if somebody's using the Lord's name in vain or you know, if somebody's mocking Christianity? Does that offend you? Because it should. It offends me. Is God truly significant to us? You say, well, of course he is. He saved me. You know, actions speak louder than words. And so if we're going to say that God is everything, and if we're going to say that, you know, God is the most significant thing in my life, then our actions should back that up. You know, if we were to ask anybody here, you know, if somebody were to harm your family, what would you do to protect them? Most of us would say, I would do anything to protect them. And that's right, we should. Well, do we have that same passion for our God, for our Savior? Because we should. God expects honor and reverence. In verse 14 of Malachi, when it says, But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God doesn't want second best. He, he doesn't want the scraps that are left over. God wants the very best. He says you offer a corrupt, you're sacrificing a corrupt thing. Listen, when our hearts are, are impure and our thoughts are wrong and, and our lives are not lined up with what God desires for us to do, and then we say, here we go, God, I, I, it's all yours, I'm all yours, but really, in reality, we're holding everything back and we got all this sin in our life. You know, God's not pleased with that. Be holy for I am holy, he says. So we got to honor. God is more concerned with the heart of the worshiper than he is with the gifts on the altar. You know what? He's concerned where our heart is. We can bring all the sacrifices and all the gifts to him, but you know what he wants? The heart. So we need to honor the Lord. As I mentioned before, we need to offer our best. You know, they were given the sickly, you know, least of the herd. You know, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Think about that. He was the perfect sacrifice. He gave, God gave his only begotten son the very best, the only sacrifice that could atone for sins. Why would we give God anything less than that? There's that song that says, give of your best to the master. Think about that. The choicest, the first, the costliest. Sacrifices cost something. And listen, I'm, I'm not sitting here again condemning anybody because I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. You know, oftentimes, you know, what do we do? We, we make sure, you know, we have our schedules and make sure I take all care of all this stuff and then whatever's left, God, that's yours. And usually what happens when you have schedules like that? You never have anything left. But you know what? God should get the first and then whatever is left over, that's for us. But we get it mixed up. So we, and we need to worship in sincerity. You know, 
if you read through verses 12 and 13, but ye have profaned it in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even as meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, behold, what a weariness is, is it? And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. Snuffed means to sigh. Like, oh. you, ever, you, ever, you ever have a, a child do that? Like you're saying something, they go, oh. That, that, that was never allowed. That would be the last breath you would take in my house. Not our house. My dad, that just didn't fly. That sigh, that would have been it. Why? Because it's, it's wrong. And that's what they were doing to God. They were like, oh, and you snuffed that. You know, God is saying, God, you're, 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 your worship is wrong. You're not honoring me. You're not, you're not, you're not you're reverencing God. And they're like, yeah, okay. Because God wants sincerity in our worship. But sometimes we become very complacent in our devotion. Our hearts are wrong. We become complacent in our growth, our spiritual growth. In 2 Peter chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, let's start reading verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that... Uh, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." God desires for us to abound in our growth, in our spiritual growth. That word abound means to increase or augment, exactly what you would think it means. Then he says that you be not barren. The word barren means free from labor at leisure, shunning the labor which one ought to perform. So what is he saying? He says, I want you to increase in your knowledge, increase in your spiritual growth. I don't want you to just take your leisure and be comfortable and say, hey, everything is good. And then he says that you neither be barren, lazy, or unfruitful. Unfruitful means destitute of good deeds. Wow. God wants us to be fruitful in our lives. He desires for us to be fruitful, but guess fruitful, but guess what? C laziness, complacency robs us of that. So that is the place in Christian. The next two points aren't nearly as long, I promise. Number two is having Christian contentment. These will be quicker. Webster defines contentment this way, the state of being happy and satisfied. That's an easy one. For the Christian, what does that satisfaction come from? It's being satisfied in Christ. That means no matter what happens, you're satisfied in Jesus. What if you lose everything? You're satisfied in Jesus. Well, what, 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 if, what if I have no friends? I'm satisfied in Jesus. What if you lose your job? Be satisfied in Jesus. You say, well, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. But that's what being content is. Number one, we need to be content in our, in letter A, I should say, in our circumstances. Philippians chapter 4. We need to be content in our circumstances. You know, if anyone had a right to gripe or complain or be bitter, it was the Apostle Paul. Think about everything he went to. He was whipped. 
He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was imprisoned. He was imprisoned again. He was beaten again. I mean, you think about everything that happened to that man. He was shipwrecked. And through it all, he could still make a statement like we're about to read in Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, Paul's saying whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether I have a lot or whether I have nothing, I have learned to be content. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do, do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Wow. Think about that. You know what? If we're content in our circumstances, you know what it requires? It requires for us to have the right focus. Our focus needs to be right. Because listen, if, if our focus isn't on Christ, when those times of, of, of trouble come, it's going to be hard. Think about the house that's built on the rock and built on the sand. When the storms of life come, it, listen, we'll, I, I'll stumble. I, listen, my wife, our family, we've, we've been through a lot of trials like everybody else. And I remember early on going through some of those trials and thinking, I'm done. I, I can't do this. This is too hard. And it felt like it was impossible. But the grace of God got us through it. And every one of us in here could testify to the same thing. We're like, man, you get to that point where you feel like, I can't do it anymore. And then the grace of God. God showers us with his grace and you get on the other side of that trial and you realize, you know what? God had me the whole time. And then you start to learn to be content because you realize even in the midst of trials, even in the storms, God's still there. God is still with us and he doesn't leave us. So we can be content in our circumstances. That's why I said before, you know, Paul, Paul and Silas, they were th- I, that's, that is my favorite passage of Scripture. Why? Because they were in prison. I mean, we're not talking, you know, country club jail. We're not talking, you know, low security. We're talking a dungeon, a pit. And they're shackled, and they're left for dead, and they sing praises and pray. And God does a miraculous thing. You know, up until that point, you're probably thinking, there's no way I could have done that. I don't know that I could be singing and praying in the midst of that. But I can tell you, I can tell you this. I'd be sure that if we took a survey, every one of us would want to be there when those walls started shaking. Every one of us would want to be there when those shackles came off. And every one of us would want to be there when that man said, what must I do to be saved? Sometimes you've got to go through that to get there. But guess what? We could be content in our circumstances because God is with us. Letter B, we can be content with our blessings. That means that everything needs to have the right place in our life. There's nothing wrong. If God chooses to bless us, that's awesome. But everything has to have a right place. You know, listen, the richest man that the Bible speaks about was Solomon. Solomon didn't get himself in trouble because of his riches. He got himself in trouble because of his lust. It wasn't his riches that got him in trouble. God blessed him abundantly with riches and wisdom. But it wasn't that. It was, it was the lust. The, the heathen wives that got him in trouble. In Joshua 
chapter 7 and verse 21, we know the story of Achan. And in Joshua chapter 7 and in verse 21, the Bible says, When I saw among the goodly, I'm sorry, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, and I coveted them, and I took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. You know what? God, think about what happened to Achan. God had said you could have anything except, or, you know, he told them specifically what they could take, and Achan decided, I'm going to take this because it looks good, and why leave it wasted here? Now, I want you to think about something. God was blessing them tremendously. He was giving them victory after victory after. They were marching through Canaan. They were, they were getting the land that God had promised them. They were having victory after victory. Joshua surrendered to the leading of God. And man, things were going well. And then Achan takes a look and says, oh, look at that. That was not something that they should have had. And God made that clear. But he decided, eh, what's the big deal? Listen, everything has to have a rightful place. You don't have to turn there, but in Job, and we know the story of Job, but in Job chapter 31, Job chapter 31, verse 24, the Bible says, uh, no, that's Psalm, that's why it's wrong. Psalm, uh, Job 31, and verse 24, the Bible says, If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence, if I rejoice because my wealth was great, and because mine hand had gotten much, if I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart hath been sec secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. You know what he said? If all these things were my confidence, if all these things were the things that I was looking forward to, and I was placing my trust and my hope in, then I should be punished. Job understood. Listen, there's nothing wrong with this. Remember, Job was doing really well for himself. But he understood, these things are not my confidence. These things are not my hope. These things are not my foundation. God is. Everything in our life has to have a rightful place. So we have to have a right focus, a right place, and then you can experience contentment. In Isaiah 26, 3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. You know, God can give us perfect peace. What is perfect peace? It's being content in whatever situation we're in. Do you ever have a difficult situation you're dealing with? Could have been a financial situation, um, you know, death of a loved one, uh, health issues, whatever it is. And there was just a peace that settled on your heart. And you knew that the only place that peace could have come was from God. Well, you know what? You stay, you know, we sang that song on Sunday, Like a River Glorious, stayed upon Jehovah. Amen. And that's, that's, that's the verse where this comes, where that comes from. At the end of the song, it says, finding perfect peace and rest. How do you do that? By staying on Jehovah. How can we have perfect peace? How can we experience contentment? Stay upon Jehovah. Not the world. Not our money. Listen, money comes, money goes. Fame comes, fame. All those things are, are, are fleeting. But when you stand upon the rock, you will not fall. Oh, you may get knocked down, but you can get back up. 
and God will lift us up, and God will give us the strength to move on, and God's grace is sufficient. Think about what Paul said. After all the things, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul got up and kept right on moving because he understood that the grace of God was all he needed. And finally, the conclusion is this. Identifying complacency and then the solution for it. The first thing are the five marks of complacency. Now, this, I, I, this is not mine. I wish it was. In doing a study, I found these. And I thought they were great, so I figured I would share them with you. This was done by Dr. James White. Um, number one, how do we identify complacency? Number one, we're far too easily satisfied. We're far too easily satisfied. I always hear pastor, I used to hear pastor say it all the time, and I used to hear, he still says it. He says he's never satisfied. You've heard him give those testimonies. And I used to think, I could never work for him. But you know what? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We should never be satisfied. Why? Because the one who enabled us to do whatever it is we just did can do even greater and more. And he desires to do greater and more. But sometimes we're like we get satisfied in all, our, all the things that God's done in our past and we don't move forward. When we start getting small answers to prayers and those become big things in our life, we're missing out. Listen, it's okay to pray for, you know, Lord, my car just broke. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you pray and you ask God to have, and somebody comes along and your car is fixed. That's awesome. How about praying, God, remove this mountain out of my way? You say, well, come on now. That's ridiculous. That's just figuratively speaking. Listen, if God can part the waters of the Red Sea, he could do absolutely anything he desires to do. Are we willing to let him do that? We become too satisfied with the small answers when God desires to do greater things. He's not limited. Number two, we're quick to make excuses. You know, sometimes we come across challenges and we kind of look at the challenges and we're like, yeah, I don't think I want to go through that. And we make an excuse or, you know, we see the things and we're trying to figure out. And then those challenges end up becoming obstacles in our life and we're like, yeah, I don't think so. And then obstacles become barriers that can't be moved. And when you get to those barriers that you feel like you can't move, what happens? We make an excuse. Say, I'm not doing it. Complacency. We never have enough time. I used to challenge our teenagers. I used to tell them, listen, and I used to give them a worksheet. And I used to say, I want you, and this was just between them. It was never to be given back. It was just a personal accountability of their time. I said, I want you to write down, other than the hours you sleep, write down what you use your time for. Not every single minute, but, you know, roughly. I use an hour, I mean, six hours in school, an hour for homework, whatever. I did that a couple of times. The first time I did it, I was shocked at how little time compared to everything else I did, I gave to God. And I think when we start to evaluate our time, we start to realize, ooh, I think a lot of the teenagers, they, didn't, they never said anything about it, but some of them were like, I don't think I want to do this. And I was like, yeah, I know the feeling because you don't want to do it because we already know the answer. And God says, hey, I want all, surrender all. But the problem is like, and listen, I can get there. Man, I'm tired. You know what? Let's just turn on the TV and just, what's the expression? Let's veg out. Let's just relax. We've had a long week. And listen, I think that's, that's right to get some rest. But we've got to be careful that doesn't become the norm because when it becomes the norm, then it's much harder to get back to where we're supposed to be. We be when we're complacent, what's a sign of complacent? We're no longer teachable. You know, when, when, when somebody says, hey, we need to get out there and do something for God, 
don't make an excuse. Don't say, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. That's a dangerous place to be. You always want to be teachable. God is always growing us. And then the last one is, be careful you don't become content with early victories or successes. Because, listen, those successes are great, but they're in the past. We've got to keep moving forward. And then finally, what is the solution to complacency? Four quick things. Number one, prayer. Ask God to give you more zealousness. Ask God to fire you up. I remember a time in my life I used to pray that God would, would just help me to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to pray. That was my prayer. God, I want to I start reading and praying early in the morning. Help me get up at 4 in the morning. Guess what? I got up at 4 in the morning, and at 4.10 I was asleep again with a Bible in my hand. By the way, it doesn't make me more spiritual. You know, you see people fast asleep with the Bible. Man, they must have pray, prayed and read till they fell asleep. No, I was tired. I went back to sleep. <laughs> and I did it a second time, and the same thing happened. And I finally realized, you know what I said? I said, God, give me a passion for your word so that I want to stay up. And you know what God did? He answered that prayer. And all of a sudden, every time I opened the Bible, man, it was exciting. It was powerful. I was thrilled to read it. Just ask God. Number two, the Bible. Listen, there is nothing that you will impact your life more than the Word of God. We know that. The Word of God changes lives. Number three, church. Say church. You will never be encouraged to serve and live for God more than you will in the church. I read this, this, this quote. It's this a great quote. William Fenner said this. The coals that lie together in the hearth, you see how they glow and are fired, while the little coals that have fallen off and lie by, separate from their company, are black without fire. If ever thou desirest to be zealous, make much of the fellowship of the saints. The coals that glow hottest are the coals that lie to get close together. Listen, when you're by yourself, it's really hard to get encouraged sometimes. But if you get around people who love the Lord, and you, we encourage one another, guess what, man? You, you, you leave here with a fire, with a zeal, that you want to go do something for God. You ever go out soul winning by yourself? Now, you ever got soul winning with two or three people? Which one's better? Because when you're with somebody, even if you feel like, that, 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 that's a mean-looking house, I don't want to go there. Your buddies will say, stop, get over there, we got your back. And you go. And then the dog comes out and they're gone. But you know what I mean. Church. And finally, action. Get involved. Just, just do. Listen, we, we could spend all night talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, but there comes a point where we just have to do. We just have to do. Enough talking and just get out and do it. How do you say, well, you say, well, man, I don't want to be complacent. I want to be that person who's content in whatever I am, but I want to be out there doing something for God. Then go do something for God. Say, well, what? I don't know what it is. You know, I, I'm, not really, I don't, I'm not really qualified to do this. Stop making excuses. Just go do it. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work and you find something else to do. That, that's not so bad. You tried, it didn't work, we move on. But sitting back waiting for this grand revelation sometimes doesn't work. You just got to go do. Go tell somebody about the Lord. Say, well, who? I don't know. First person you meet. Make a promise. The first person that you, that when you leave here that you see, you're just going to tell them about God or hand them a track. Say, well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Just make sure the engine's running and you got the door open and you <laughs> off you go. Just don't run them over. Let's be content in whatever place God has taken us. Let's make sure we don't get complacent. The devil wants to lull us into a sense of complacency. And if he does, he's won. But you know what? Our God is greater. We have a Savior 
who died for us. We have a Holy Spirit that dwells within us, and they, the Holy Spirit can do anything through us if we're willing to let him do it. Amen? All right, I hope that was a blessing. Um, a prayer sheet? Yes, we do. 